to Flora and Friends, your botanical cup of tea, a podcast for plant lovers of any kind. We welcome guests to our botanical tea break to explore the history, science and meaning of plants for our lives. My name is Judith Lundbey-Felten. I'm a plant scientist, university researcher and founder of Flora L Design and I'm the hostess of your botanical cup of tea. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Flora and Friends podcast about Fritillaria. And today we continue a little bit more on Fritillaria miliagris together with Katarina Rogos from Vaso University and Botanical Garden in Poland. And Katarina has worked for a long time now with Fritillaria miliagris since her, her bachelor's project, actually. And then she continued into master and the PhD, which she finished two years ago. And after that, she moved to Israel on a project where she has been working with Fritillaria persica. So she is going to talk about different studies that she is conducting today, both of plants in the wild, but also a very recent project of Fritillaria imperialis in the city center of Warsaw. And I would like to invite you to visit our blog post to this podcast episode as we're talking a little bit about plant anatomy as well. And I've put up some pictures there that you can look at to maybe get a little visual understanding of uh, Fritillaria miliagris as well. So you find that at www.flora-l.com slash blog. And with that, I say enjoy this episode and welcome to Katarina. Hello, and thank you for having me. It's always great to talk about plants. Yeah, isn't it fantastic? And, yes. and nice to have you from Poland. That is our first podcast visit to Poland as well. So, so welcome in Poland. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so my, I will start with the first question about how you have encountered Fritillaria in your work as a scientist and when you have encountered it for the first time during your projects. Um, I first encountered Fritillaria Melagis during my bachelor thesis. And I have to say that it was a relatively long relation. And I will tell you in a minute why. But first, I have to say um, that I didn't know this plant when I was a very young student. And I was really amazed that such a beautiful plant grows in Poland. I didn't know that before I started my, my bachelor thesis. And it was still just a tiny population of Fritillaria meleragris that we had Uh, in our um, botanical garden, it was just a tiny part of what was to come because uh, this population comparing to the natural one was really, really very small. Only later I saw the amazing natural population of Fritillaria malagris that we have in Poland. A beautiful purple, purple ca carpet of flowers as far as I could see. Something really, really breathtaking. I remember that I was amazed. But even the small garden population was really enough for me for the first meeting. 
And I have already mentioned that it was relatively uh, long meeting because I was analyzing the efficiency of pollinators. Uh, so I was counting pollen grains in virgin flowers. Virgin because we, we covered the flowers at the bud stage. So before they open, we covered them with mesh to prevent pollinators visit. And I released such a virgin flower for only one single pollinator visit. And, and after this visit, I removed the flower and checked the pollen deposition. And I still remember that I spent the whole summer uh, counting pollen grains because it happened very often that um, there were more than 30,000 pollen grains uh, on the female reproductive parts in the flower. So our pollinators were really efficient. Um, but the thing is that the, the more you know um, about the species, the more questions you have. I, I have the feeling that these questions are also very exciting. So you start with the very basic questions and then you discover how less you, how, how little you know about the species that you study and you have more and more questions, which is fine. I like this, this mm -hmm. part of my job. So after my first meeting with Fritillaria during my bachelor thesis, I continued with Fritillaria for my PhD. And now I also work with Fritillaria uh, with my students. Mm -hmm. Why did your supervisors to decide back in your bachelor's that Fritillaria meleagris was an interesting plant to study? Um, Fritillaria meleagris is interesting for several reasons. Uh, first, this is the only representative of Fritillaria genus in Poland. And we have natural population that is extremely, uh, and we have natural population. And this is really important to study uh, plants in their natural habitat, in their natural environment. So this is one of the reasons. Uh, but Fritillaria meleagris also flowers very, very early in the spring. This is a crucial time for emerging pollinators, for example, bumblebee queens. So, um, and at the beginning of the year, uh, bumblebee queens are in charge of collecting food for the whole developing colony, for the whole family. So we wanted to know how attractive and how rewarding Fritillaria meleagris is. Um, and there are also two color morphs of Fritillaria in Polish population. And uh, so we wanted to know how attractive are both the white flowers and the purple flowers for pollinators. Uh, and Fritillaria meleagris is not the only one in terms of the, the tessellation on the tepals. Uh, in the Fritillaria genus, there are also other species with this pattern. But we also wanted to know if pollinators are able to perceive this pattern on the tepals, if they, if they can see this tessellation. In our, and our studies revealed that um, at least bees are able to perceive this, this pattern. Uh, we assume that it might increase the attractiveness of the flower. We don't know it for sure, but this is, uh, this is our assumption. Uh, and last but not least, Fritillaria meleagris grows in only one population in Poland. So, and this species is critically um, endangered. So this is of key importance to know the reproductive strategy, the reproductive biology of, of the threatened species. Mm -hmm. Maybe I, I have a follow-up question here, and I have been also discussing this with uh, Håkan in the previous episode, the, the white flowers and the purple flowers. And I was so astonished by the fact that according to, to the research that they had done, they were 
they both set seeds, they both were pollinated, they both could reproduce, and yet the proportion of the white flowers is still very low compared to the purple one. Why is this so stable at a low percentage? Why don't they increase or disappear completely? So we, I think that we still don't know answer for this question. Uh, and this is one of the most interesting parts of studies related to color polymorphism. Why we still have two colors if the natural tendency is to, to reduce one of them. So maybe, as you said, both produce seeds, both are attractive for pollinators. I still think that the purple morphs are... Um, better protected, for example, from UV, um, from UV line, because it might be also destructive for the flower. So we don't know for sure what is happening and what maintains both color morphs. And I think that there are several, several aspects. This might be combination of pollinators preferences and habitat and also environment. So the whole surrounding. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we've heard a lot about why why studying this is important. So I you you mentioned in the beginning a little bit of how you are studying that you were covering the plants and then releasing them one by one uh, to to see I mean to let them visit by a certain insect. What kind of other ways are there of studying studying pollination biology? And are you are you in the lab? Are you in a greenhouse? Are you in the wild? Where do you uh, do this? In both places, in fact. When we are in the field working in natural populations, we usually study breeding system of our focal species. So we check if, for example, plant if is self-compatible, if there is possibility uh, for the flower um, to be pollinated with, with own pollen grains. And if it's possible, then how it happens. So is it a spontaneous process or still if pollinator is needed, if, if the presence of, presence of pollinator uh, is needed. We also check if plants uh, are pollen limited. So when we are in the field, uh, we usually pollinate, pla we pollinate plants um, by hand. And then we compare the number of seeds produced between control and hand pollinated flowers. And this comparison is, for example, information for us um, if the studied species may potentially produce more seeds, if there were more pollinators or if the visits were more frequent. So if there are some if there is some mismatch between flowering and pollinators. And we are also, usually when we are in the field, we are also curious about the food reward. I, I have also already mentioned that nectar is one of the most important food rewards for potential pollinators. So usually when we are in the field, we collect uh, nectar and then we analyze its properties. So for example, the amount of sugar, the proportion of sugar. And when we want more detailed analysis, we also test the um, concentration of amino acids. These two components, so sugars and amino acids, uh, are important for pollinators. They, they are searching for, for nectar also because of these two components. So it is important um, whether, the, whether the nectar is high concentrated or it has low concentration. Um, as I said, this is very important. Flowers are very important source of, of food for pollinators. So very often nectar 
properties reflect preferences of the most common or most important pollinators. And we also want to study, we, we usually search for an answer uh, if nectar properties reflect preferences of the pollinators. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's uh, follow up on that. Who are the uh, pollinators of uh, Fritillaria miliagris? Mm, in the case of Fritillaria, uh, I have already said that they flower really early in the spring. Uh, and the studies in Poland um, conducted by Professor Spiczynska and Professor Zik revealed that bumblebees uh, are the most frequent and probably most efficient pollinators of, of Fritillaria melagris. Uh, there were also solitary bees or honeybees in the flowers. But it is also important to record the pollinator's behavior. And during my, my bachelor thesis, we observed that the flowers facing down um, are a little bit complicated task for pollinators. So not all insects were able to, to fly directly into the flower. So this we observed that only for bumblebees, there were bumblebees were the, the only pollinators that were able to fly directly into a flower. The rest of the insect visitors, they first sat on the tepals on the outside, and then they crawled, crawled slowly into the flower. So, um, and there are also, um, for example, flies, which we, which we saw in the flowers or on the flowers. But some of the insects that visited Fritillaria melagris in the, in the field, uh, they, they didn't touch the reproductive parts of the flowers. So we cannot say that they are true pollinators. They, they are just flower visitors or even flower thieves. It, it also happens that, um, that insects which are visiting flowers, uh, when they only feed on pollen or nectar and they don't um, touch the reproductive parts, we can even say that they are flower thieves or rubbers. Um, so in terms of, of pollination, I would say that the Oscar goes to bumblebees. <laughs> 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 Fantastic. Uh, and when you, you mentioned the reproductive organs in the plant and you have talked a little bit about uh, self-compatibility, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. What are the organs inside Fritillaria miliagris flower and what determines if a plant can self-fertilize self itself? Mm, so Fritillaria melagris is a representative of monocotyledons. So the, the perigon of Fritillaris consists of two or three marrows walls of tepals uh, without differ differentiation between calyx and corolla. So the if we imagine the rose flowers or the cherry flowers, we have green calyx and colorful patterns of the, of the corolla. So we don't have this division in, in monocotyledons. So we don't have this division also in Fritillaria meleagris. We have a uniform, we have uniform tepals. Um, and at the base of each tepal, we have a green groove. And this groove is a nectary area where usually we can find some amount of glittering liquid. So this is nectar, uh, food reward for pollinators. 
And going further to the center of the flowers, we have six stamens. These are the main reproductive parts of the flower. Uh, and each stamen, uh, stamen at the end has two anthers, which are usually filled with uh, yellow pollen grains. Pollen grains may have dif different colors, but usually they are yellow because most of the pollinators have um, preference towards yellow color. So this is one of the most common colors. Uh, and in the very center of the flower, we have style, so the female reproductive part of the flower. Uh, and in Fritillaria melagris style has usually three lobed stigma. It might be also two lobed or four lobed, it depends on the specimen, but usually there are three lobes. Um, and stigma is a, is, a, um, is, is an area where pollen grains are supposed to land. Mm. So I would say that, that flowers are both very simple and very complex at the same time. And in the case of Fritillaria malagris, um, we have both male reproductive parts and female reproductive parts, and they, they grow relatively close to each other. Uh, so this is something that definitely increases the probab probability of self-fertilization. Uh, but it's not it's not obvious. Mm -hmm. And then they also mature mature pretty much at the same time. So when the yes. pollen becomes mature, uh, yeah. the the stigma is also mature. Yes, 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 yes. That's that's true. Mm, but with self with self compatibility, it it's not that simple. Um, Fritillaria malagris in, in most population probably is self-compatible, but still this species uh, probably will need pollinators. Um, and it's, um, as I said, it's not always obvious. First thing, probably not all the populations of Fritillaria malagris are, are self-compatible. And this might be also very variable even within one population. So even in one population, we can have self-compatible specimens and self-incompatible specimens. Mm, the, the levels of self-compatibility are variable, which is, which is very natural and happens for, for several species. Uh, and I said that still even self-compatible species will need pollinators because usually the amount of pollen that will get on the stigma via autonomous self-pollination, so without pollinators, Mm, is in most cases lower. So the number of pollen grains that will that will be placed on the stigma uh, will be relatively small. And and third, pollination with with own pollen is always a worst case scenario because of inbreeding risk or decreasing diversity. Uh, so even for self-compatible plants, it is better to get um, pollinated with pollen from other specimens with a greater number of pollen grains, which naturally increases the chances for better offspring. So for example, if we have seeds produced by flowers pollinated with pollen from the same plant and uh, from um, pollinated by pollen from other plant, probably um, the cross-pollinated specimens will have higher germination rate. So self-pollination is good, I would say, but cross-pollination is better. Mm -hmm. And that, that's also why we need the insects, so that there's going yes. to be cross-pollination. Yes. And happening. I also, mm, 
I also have to say that, for example, in the case of Fritillaria persica, which is other representative of Fritillaria genus, um, anthers, so male reproductive parts, at the beginning of flowering, they are very far away from the female reproductive parts. But um, when they are, when during the anthesis, so when the anthers um, release pollen grains, they are very close to the stigma, so they touch the reproductive parts so that the whole stigma is covered with, with pollen from the same flower. But surprisingly, um, these flowers didn't produce seeds because I, I, I checked that uh, last year in Israel, in Fritillaria persica, in natural habitat. So I covered the, the flower at the bud stage because I was curious if uh, the, depos the autonomous deposition of pollen grains on the stigma is enough to produce seeds, but it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, no. It no, wasn't. and that's, I think that's the fascinating part that there is this time and space uh, oh. mechanisms for controlling if a pla plant can at all, like deposit the pollen on the, on the, on the stigma. But the other thing is that there is um, like a lock and key mechanism in terms of molecular receptor and ligand where the pollen needs to be recognized in a molecular way by the by the female plants of yes. the, the plant and that is not always the case so I was I was really curious um, um, it was the first time for me to hear that um, self-compatibility uh, and incompatibility can be emerging and changing in a natural population. So I was wondering, what do we know about that and how does that work? Um, I think that we still don't know much about how it works and when it emerges, because I think that there are several factors that may potentially decide about this. Uh, there are specific situations when, for example, self being self-compatible is a better solution. For example, on isolated, very small populations, when we don't have enough uh, pollinators or uh, where there are not enough specimens to, to get pollinated with. So there are specific circumstances where being self-compatible is important and might help. And also when, when plants are founders of new populations. So and in fact, only self-compatible plant um, can found a new population without, without pollinators. So I think that it may vary and it may also change um, uh, when we talk about the range of a specific species. Uh, and we did such a studies for Polemonium ceruleum, which has a south border in Poland. Uh, and one of our assumptions was that, um, let's say in the center of the range of the species, flowers are self-incompatible because it's better for them, it's better to be more divergent. Um, but on the border of the, of the range, uh, when there is a higher risk that there won't be enough uh, pollinators or in a, uh, not enough um, uh, other mates to, to get pollinated, then in such circumstances, maybe it, it, the self-compatibility might appear. Mm -hmm. Plants are so smart. Yes, they are really <laughs> smart. As I said with the flower, on one hand, everything seems to be very obvious, but on the other hand, 
it's not. <laughs> mm, indeed. What about the what about the time frame when it comes to pollination? The fritillaria is blooming rather early in the year, and you mentioned that in the very beginning that it's it's important that the insects are synchronized with the plants. Is temperature outside temperature synchronizing both of them, or can it happen that in one year? there's less pollinators available because the flowers are blooming and the pollinators are not there yet. I think that it's possible. And this is one of the most severe threats related to um, climate change, that there will be a mismatch between pollinators and flowering plants. I think that in the case of fritillaria, um, in fact, when we studied pollination in natural habitat, the frequency of visits was very, very low. So there was, let's say, one visit per hour. But sometimes even not a very high number of visits will be enough for full seed set. But as you said, it is very, very risky. For example, I will go back again to Israel. Um, Fritillaria persica is a species growing in the desert. Uh, and the flowering season is very, very short. And I think that the risk of mismatch um, in the case of plants growing in the desert is extremely high. So, so um, because this might happen that, for example, because of the very, very warm spring, uh, plants will, will uh, start very early. They will um, they will, uh, flower for a very short period of time and then pollinators won't be even active. Uh, so this is very risky situation uh, and I think that um, in temperate zones the risk is, is lower because still uh, in Poland this year we have um, relatively cold spring and but there are some pollinators, so they are already active. I, I constantly stress that it is important that Fritillaria melagris flowers very early because early in the spring, pollinators are struggling to find a uh, source of food. So um, this is extremely, the, the, the possible potential mismatch between pollinators and plants, I think that it is extremely risky, especially uh, early in the spring. Um, maybe this is not that risky for, for honeybee colonies because there is always someone to take care of these families, but this is risky for, uh, for wild pollinators. So for example, for, for, um, for bumblebee. And bumblebee queens uh, need to work a lot because they need to collect as much sugar as they as the weight of their body. So this means a lot. And sometimes uh, it means that they have to visit more than 5,000 flowers. So it is really huge work to do. And I think that when they will emerge too early and there won't be enough flowering plants, this is a trap. Mm. It's a very it's a very sensitive relationship for both sides, both for the plants yes. and for the bumblebees. Yes, it is always good to be self-compatible in this situation because this is the worst case scenario where uh, when, when plants can use this uh, uh, this option to, to self-pollinate. Yes, but for, for definitely for self-incompatible plants and for pollinators, this is very risky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you mentioned the bumblebee as a very important um, yes. partner for fritillaria. Are there other organisms that we know um, are in a certain relationship with the plant? Um, fritillaria is one of the bigger genera in Liliaceae family. And yes, definitely the, the, there is a potential for cooperation with other organisms. Uh, and that's true. But when I'm saying this, I mean first pollinators. And the genus uh, Fritillaria um, com is comprising approximately 150 species uh, and is described as mostly pollinated by insects. However, there are at least three exceptions. And there are two hummingbird pollinated species in North America, uh, Fritillaria gentneri and Fritillaria recurva. And there is one passerine bird pollinated species from Asia, at least one. This is what we know. Uh, so this species is Fritillaria imperialis. Um, and the pollination by passerine birds in the case of Fritillaria imperialis was observed in Europe. Of, of course, colibris, they are uh, made to, yes. to, to drink nectar. But um, for the birds that we have around us here, I never really associated them with having a sweet tooth. <laughs> That's true. But this is kind of a side source of food for them. I also think that they visit Fritillaria imperialis flowers and treat nectar as a source of water. Flowers of Fritillaria imperialis are growing on a very thick stem. So this is a perch for, for teeth to sit on while they are drinking nectar because hummingbirds are able to hover in front of the flowers and passerine birds are not able. They need a perch to sit on while foraging. And this is this thick stem of Fritillaria imperialis. This is the perfect place to sit on and they, they really use it. Um, and also nectar of Fritillaria imperialis reflects preferences of passerine birds. Uh, it has very low concentration of sugar. It is around 6%, while in the case of rest of Fritillaris, it is rather more than 40. So the difference is huge. And the nectar of Fritillaria imperialis is also full of amino acids. Uh, and passerine birds prefer high concentration of amino acids. Mm -hmm. so, so in a way, um, the reward, the food reward, uh, reflects preferences of, of passerine birds. Mm -hmm. so, um, so those are three uh, exceptions. So we have several groups of important and cooperating animals which pollinate flowers, but they are also seed dispersers. Um, most fritillaries have flat, deltoid-shaped seeds uh, with a marginal wing um, to aid wind pollination. Uh, and these seeds are relatively small and dry, but in the Fritillaria japonica group, the seeds are avoid with an eliosome to encourage um, uh, ants to collect these seeds and to disperse them, so myrmecohori. Um, and I think that this is the whole potential for cooperation with, with animals, and I think that the rest might be herbivory. Um, but as I said, I think that the relation between pollinators and plants uh, in early spring is very important. And fritillaries are honest, rewarding species, most of them. 
uh, which is also which which may also play an important role. And I said that fritillaries are honest rewarding, which is based on our recent studies. Uh, they are honest rewarding uh, because big flowers uh, are rich in a, appropriate amount of rewards. Uh, because it happens in the plant pollinators relation that some plants are cheating on pollinators. They have very showy, big, attractive, visually attractive flowers, uh, which don't have much reward. Mm. And our studies showed that in the case of fritillaries, most of the fritillaries, big flowers are really rich in rewards, which is especially uh, important for, for example, for bumblebee queens searching for food. Mm. So that's they are the, not cheated. Yeah. That's the plants to grow for us in our gardens. Yes. <laughs> that provide lots of good, good food for the, <laughs> for the bumblebees. Yes. Um, you mentioned also that uh, Fritillaria miliagris is uh, red-listed and has a declining population. Um, do we know anything about the causes behind that? Uh, yes, nowadays it's mostly threatened because its habitats are threatened. Uh, it grows in grasslands and damp meadows um, close to the rivers. And these areas are often very attractive for farmers. And as a result, um, they are very, the, the meadows are mowed very often or they are drying, dried and changed into arable fields. So those are the, the, the most severe threats to, to Fritillaria meleagris. And previously in Poland, I think that one of the threats was attractiveness and availability of Fritillaria meleagris flowers. People from villages surrounding the natural population in Poland used to collect its flowers as a decorative early spring uh, species. Nowadays, as you said, it's very everyone can have fritillaria uh, in the garden, so it is very easy to buy fritillaria bulbs and to have it um, in the garden. So the wild ones are definitely safer. Uh, but in fact, to protect fritillaries, we need to protect their habitats. Mm -hmm. This is at least the situation in Poland. Where would you recommend people to go for seeing uh, fritillarias in, uh, in Poland or elsewhere? You have also traveled a bit, so <laughs> you may have some other recommendations. Yes, but not that much. <laughs> I will tell you why. In Poland, in fact, we have one natural population in the southeast corner, close to border with Ukraine. I've said in my first um, sentence almost that this population is really amazing. I strongly recommend going and seeing this population, although Poland is a relatively big country, so it may mean a few hours of driving. Unfortunately, studying Fritillaria is a kind of trap because I would love to see the famous Uppsala population, but I never had a chance because when Fritillaries are flowering there, I am already busy <laughs> with Fritillaria in Poland. So, the, as I said, it's a trap. I always dream about seeing other populations of Fritillaria, but I am working on, on them in, in Poland for most of the time, so it's not possible to be at the same time in two places, uh, but I hope that one day I will have a chance to visit Fritillaria Malagris in Uppsala. And last year, um, I also spent in Israel where I studied Fritillaria persica in natural population. 
Uh, and I also recommend going there and seeing this population. Fritillaria meleagris has very big inflorescence with beautiful purple or greenish flowers. And when it's flowering, it's amazing. This is, I think, one of the prettiest things that one can see. This is flowering desert full of fritillaria. So yes, definitely worth of, of visiting. What is triggering the flowering of these plants? It can't be, I, I guess, in the in the desert. Is it is it temperature or is it water? Is I there a that, sudden rain some and that makes them come up? Yes, there is a period of rain. So definitely, the period of rain is something that is just before the flowering. But the the temperature um, is also something very very important. Uh, but in fact, it is difficult to say what exactly because um, I discussed that with my uh, with my um, with my colleague from Israel who also worked on irises with Yuval Sapir, and he told me that this year there was not even uh, the population in in Israel is extremely big. I think that there is more than a million flowering plants, and this year there were only less than 10 specimens flowering. So no one knows why. Probably it's because of the dry spring, but if it's the only reason, no one knows. And for example, last year when I was doing my studies, um, plants disappeared very, very fast. So they didn't produce any seeds. I don't know also why, because last season was... Uh, extremely rainy so there was raining a lot so probably good conditions to have a lot of seeds but still plants didn't produce seeds and this year they were barely flowering so we don't know why but it probably happens mm -hmm. yes do you want to talk a little bit more about your your new project because as you said yes you're still studying uh, fritillaria there is no end to this there's more and more questions what are your questions now yes that's true there is no end to this and right now we are working on fritillaria imperialis this time and uh, because the municipality in warsaw uh, surprised us very nicely And we found out that there are a lot of um, fritillaria plants in the very center of the city. So we decided to check if um, such a, a rich in reward plant will be attractive for pollinators, even though it grows in the very, very center of the city. So the population in Warsaw right now is um, surrounded by buildings and streets not much green areas um, uh, in the proximity of, of our uh, focal population. Um, and we, uh, we use also quantum dots, so we dye pollen grains to check if uh, pollinators are visiting only one population uh, or if they are visiting uh, several populations in the center. So we, we try to check if they move between between the, the, the populations that we have in, in Warsaw in the center, um, because we assume that it's possible that when they reach the population, which is surrounded by buildings and street, they will um, use as much plants within the population as possible. 
Um, but this is also possible that they will um, travel between different populations. We don't know it yet. Uh, for now, we, we can say that these plants are attractive. There are a lot of pollinators, even though we are surrounded only by buildings and streets and cars. So <laughs> this is something we, which, which surprised us, in fact. And do we remember well that uh, Fritillaria imperialis was one of the plants that is pollinated by birds? Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. So you have, uh, are, you, are you tracing the pollen on birds and on other pollinators or are you tracing the pollen with the quantum dots on other plants? Uh, on other plants. Mm. So we collect um, the female reproductive parts and we check if there is this marked pollen on the stigma. Unfortunately, I've never observed um, teats because those are the birds that are visiting uh, Fritillaria. I've never saw any bird in, uh, in Fritillaria flowers in Poland, but it was observed in Great Britain and in Germany. So... I hope that it is also possible to observe that in Poland, but I've never saw it. Very interesting. Great and a great way to see how you moved from the natural population outside now to the city. And there's also interesting aspects to study there and the coincidence that the city of uh, Varsovie has planted these plants, (laughs) especially for you. Yes, exactly. I had I had the feeling that it was especially for me. And I when I called the municipality to tell them that I will do the the study on fritillaria, the the lady said, "Ah, you are the fritillaria lady." <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it's going to be your second name. <laughs> you have one with me. I don't know if you can. Ah, yeah, you have a, a fritillaria tattoo on your arm. Always the fritillaria there. That's very authentic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, is there anything else that I haven't asked and that you would like to share? Yes. Okay, because I also wanted to say that when someone wants to study fritillaria, it is good to follow the Fritillaria Icons project. This is the project of Lawrence Hill, who is my Fritillaria friend. And uh, you can follow his work on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook, and of course on the website. And it is really great source of information. Um, also because Lawrence always keeps the track of the latest publication concerning Fritillaria. Mm -hmm. So also the scientific works are posted there. So this is really a good source of information. And in fact, my tattoo is his picture. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. And if somebody wants to find you or reach out to you, where can they find you? Uh, They, of course, they they can contact me by email. I can I can share it, and uh, of course through the website of Warsaw University Botanical Garden. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much for thank your you time too. and for this lovely interview. Yes, thank you also for having me. I hope you have enjoyed this episode, and if you have not yet visited the blog post belonging to it with some nice pictures and also some microscopy images, visit us at www.flora-l.com forward slash blog. And next week, we are going to continue with Fritillaria and with 
a little bit more of an overview of the Fritillaria genus and we're going to meet Bob Wallace from the Fritillaria group who is taking us on lots of different travels around the world where he actually has spent his most of his holidays searching for Fritillaria in their natural habitats. So join us next Wednesday again for the Flora and Friends podcast. Have a nice week and thank you for tuning in today.